I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast from RAIN Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope to talk about her work in forensic accounting and her new book, Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories, and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry. Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope is the Dr. Barry J. Epstein Endowed Professor of Forensic Accounting at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. She is a nationally recognized expert in risk, forensic accounting, and white-collar crime research, and an award-winning educator, researcher, author, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. She teaches managerial and forensic accounting both at the undergraduate and graduate level. Kelly, it truly is a a great honor. Congratulations on uh, the book, and um, I'm truly looking forward to having a uh, a very uh, informative conversation on a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, in any event, maybe a good place to start is a little bit about your background. Um, an accounting professor, you're not a uh, criminologist, you're not a psychologist, uh, but nonetheless, your book and, and uh, your speaking and your writings touch upon all those uh, subjects. But uh, a little bit about your background, how you came to this book and what you were trying to accomplish. Sure. Well, I am an accountant CPA by training, and um, I have always been intrigued by people who think that accounting is not important, (laughs) it's not interesting, um, it's not vital. And so I have, um, I I discovered my interest in fraud many, many years ago. um, And what was really interesting to me about the field of forensic accounting was really the intersection of so many different fields, and those fields being psychology, sociology, criminology, auditing, financial accounting. And um, I think that that's just, um, forensic accounting is a blend of all of those things. But I think um, its core foundation is understanding the basics of what financial accounting or auditing is and what it isn't. And so what brought me to writing this book was really a years in the classroom of noticing how students, mostly graduate students, responded and behaved when different types of perpetrators, whistleblowers, or victims came to the class and shared their cases. And so it wasn't this one-size-fit-all type of emotion that they displayed towards whether it's perpetrators, prey, or, or, or victims. It was this varied um, display of emotions that they had, and I wanted to understand that better. Um, I also wanted to advance this idea that any of us, all of us, are susceptible to engaging in an unethical uh, decision-making path. And not to say that we will engage, but a lot of us can rationalize why we can do something we want to do, especially if it's something that we want. So my goal with the book was really to force us to be a lot more self-reflective than I think most professionals are willing to be. And so that's what brought me to um, taking all these ideas and all these experiences and putting them into Fool Me Once. So it's very interesting, and I want to uh, 
unpack that uh, because I definitely felt the, uh, I'll call it, the uh, undercurrent of a nuanced approach and understanding to why people behave the way they do. And I couldn't help hearing my grandparents or one go deceased saying, but for the grace of God, go thee. And, and very much um, what I'll refer to as an important aspect of, how should I say, uh, this notion that criminal justice has about specific deterrence and general deterrence. And as companies, you know, how courts struggle, they still haven't found the right formula on the culture standpoint. One of the conclusions that the Federal Reserve had around the financial crisis and everything that occurred was that there was a cultural failure at many institutions. It wasn't just about individuals, you know, as, as you would say, like, you know, a mastermind criminal. But overall, there was a uh, cultural failure, and um, heads of the Fed uh, were speaking about that. But before I go there, I have to um, tell you a story um, which had informed my thinking. Many years ago, when I was uh, in my second year of law school, I took a corporations class, and it was very interesting because the professor uh, at the first lecture said, I want everyone to pay attention at least to the first 10 minutes of the semester. You'll probably forget everything else, but I think I'm going to share something with you that you'll remember. And uh, the two things he imparted was the importance of continuing to read. Um, and in particular, he was uh, talking about the, uh, the Wall Street Journal and, and generally business uh, publications because you were going to learn not just, you continue to learn not just about business and how it operates, but you were going to learn about personalities. And uh, because businesses do not operate in a vacuum and there's a wide swath of personalities. And then he told the story of a CEO who, uh, whose company was about to go public and um, he was interviewing potential uh, outside independent auditors. By the way, in those days, Kelly, without dating myself too much, Arthur Anderson was part of the story. So, uh, but he, uh, first of the big five come in and the CEO has a question for the relationship partner. Sir, would you tell me how much two plus two is? Quick answer, four. Second, third, fourth. Towards the end, uh, there's one more candidate. He says, I have just one question. You have great credentials. How much is two plus two? And the relationship partner pauses and sort of rubs his chin and thinks for a minute and then turns to the CEO and says, how much would you like it to be? <laughs> and that was the auditor who was chosen. And the professor said, that is what, that is a story you must remember as you go out into the corporate world, okay? And uh, the one thing uh, you and I, uh, prior to this, podcast we're talking about, um, a mutual friend of ours who's done a lot of work in the forensic accounting space. And the one thing I, I, I learned from my days at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Goldman Sachs, and, and that's why I was particularly fascinated, accounting is about numbers, but it is also reflective of the personalities around a company. 
how aggressive, how transparent, how conservative, etc. they are. And maybe you can, uh, because I, I, I sort of felt maybe, you know, as I was reading and, and now listening to the reasons for the book, that you felt that in, in your years of dealing with accounting and numbers, that that's in part, that was the bridge, that the numbers often told you something about the personalities behind the numbers. Well, if you think about it, then that final number on any financial statement is really a culmination of a lot of decisions, a lot of behaviors, um, a lot of emotions. And so my goal, and and I guess where my intrigue started, was really trying to unpack uh, those those feelings and those emotions because we know that they are. There's a series of transactions, journal entries that led to that final number but then behind even that journal entry there are meetings there are discussions there's decisions some of them ethical some of them um, unethical some of them um, being some people making those decisions being pressured by a corporate culture being pressured by a ceo being pressured by an outside uh, outside force so i really wanted to try to attempt to understand that and perhaps allow us to empathize a little bit differently how fraud actually happens. So the word empathy, uh, very important. And uh, subtitle, good people are capable of doing bad things. And there have been a lot of social, social psych, psychologists who have studied, you know, the influence and the pressure. And maybe um, because you, you, you do uh, in your book and um, in your what I'll refer to in the presentations, uh, you do note that there are different types of people and different types of personalities, and it is not one size fits all. When a fraud occurs, there are often very different and nuanced explanations, I'll call it sliding scales around the activities, and different sort of departure points about how things uh, start and look, the the Madoffs of the world. Just uh, I'll speak generically, and then there are the other people who end up getting caught up in doing things. Um, are you are you a, by, by the way are you a fan of Succession at all? You know I I haven't. I've watched a couple of the first um, first season. I'm, I'm I can't say that. I'm not. I just haven't devoted the time to being involved yet. Okay. Well, I'll send you a link where I think it's in the fourth season. I don't watch that much of, you know, entertaining TV, mostly news. But there's a wonderful scene as uh, the patriarch of the company uh, has passed away and the sons are now taking over. And it's the first shareholders meeting uh, concerning the transition where one of the brothers is meeting with the accountants and they're going through the numbers and the projections. And uh, you can see how the um, cult of personality, the force, etc., cetera, uh, co-ops uh, the people who are putting the financial statements and the projections together. And it's, it's a, a remarkable scene. They must, the writers had to either have some firsthand experience here or, you know, were, were well informed. But maybe you can talk about, uh, because I, I, I love the fact that you were so nuanced about both the commission of fraud and the people who do it and the circumstances that drive it. Well, what I wanted to do was really add something to the fraud literature that 
people could use that would be additive to the fraud triangle. And so what in the first half of the book or the first the first third of the book, I talk about perpetrators, but I really break that category down and define three different categories of perpetrators. And those are intentional perpetrators, accidental perpetrators, and righteous perpetrators. Now, the intentional perpetrators, if if you're watching any kind, any type of true crime show, if you're re- listening to any true crime podcast, if you have uh, your Google alert set for any crime or, or, or fraud terminology and an article pops up, more than likely it's about an intentional perpetrator, somebody that knows the inside of a system and can exploit it for personal gain. We know those stories. But I think the problem is we assume everybody is like that and falls into that category. But what I want us to think about are where we actually could find ourselves if we ever found ourselves on the other side of, of, of wrong, of good. And this idea that you could be an accidental perpetrator or a righteous perpetrator are these two categories that I, I want us to think about. And so an, an accidental perpetrator is somebody that is a people pleaser. They're a team player. They follow the boss's orders. They never push back. You ask them to do something, they do what they believe in the system. And so sometimes by their actions of just blindfully following the leader, they can find themselves committing fraud. And they may know that it doesn't feel right, but they may not think fully that it's unethical. That's the accidental perpetrator. And that can easily be a professional um, a professional client-serving person, such as an accountant, such as a lawyer, such as an investment banker, such as a doctor, such as a nurse. You know, professional people that you think that would never find themselves in those situations. The uh, the uh, righteous perpetrator, on the other hand, is is somebody that has reached a significant level within an organization and can use their power and privilege within that organization to help someone outside of the organization. So, say for instance, you are trying to you are at a bank executive and you're trying to help a struggling startup and you happen to know the founder and you just make it make it such that they get the funding that they need and they don't they don't check all the necessary boxes that they should check but because they knew know you and you're a star in the organization no one's going to ask you questions the rules don't necessarily apply to you and that person could easily fall victim to becoming a righteous perpetrator so again what i wanted to do is what i wanted people to see when we think about fraud and we think about true when we think about white collar crime is if we can see ourselves in it, we may be more likely to stop it. We may be more realistic about the internal controls that we establish to identify it and stop it. And so that's what my that's what my charge is. Well, let me um, sort of build on that because um, there was, you know, the accidental perpetrator. Um, in my experience, uh, I've seen people who have gotten caught up and didn't realize that what they were doing was wrong. And uh, is that a separate category? Uh, but nonetheless, they, they have committed fraud. Nonetheless, they face criminal or civil enforcement actions. Uh, and how much of this, you know, in the, in the buckets and in the case studies that you have, how often did you come across an individual or individuals who actually didn't realize they were committing fraud at the time? Many, many. I mean, many, that they didn't realize that it would land themselves um, in federal prison. They didn't think it was fraud. Many. And they were actually, 
coached or convinced that it wasn't wasn't fraudulent and they just believed that so I, I find that more often than not and because part, part of uh, as you know um, the criminal justice system whether people plead guilty or they're convicted the issue is one of intent and uh, what I um, sort of sense from your again your nuanced approach to this is that um, you were able to identify people who do get caught up don't realize it at the time, didn't realize it until there was the proverbial knock on the door, that they had been doing something that was wrong because they had been captured, you know, within a certain culture or institution. Or, to add to what you're saying, or the person didn't realize it was wrong at the outset, and now they're mixed into it and they don't know how to get out. Right. And um, I'm going to uh, also uh, note there's been a rise of, I'll call it a, a uh, you know, there's, as you refer, I, I think you refer to it as a fraud industrial complex. Uh, uh, there's, there's also a new area which deals with whistleblowers and a purposeful uh, program by the SEC and other authorities uh, to get people an escape valve. Uh, and obviously a very, very um, strong, at least monetary incentive. And, you know, people often don't realize what the process involves and what it means to the disruption of their lives. But when you look at uh, whistleblowers, people who do step out of the box and say, wait a second, what is happening here is wrong. Whether they do it as part of an internal reporting where they raise their hand uh, or they you know, become a, or try to become official whistleblowers from a government standpoint. How do you think uh, about sort of those people and uh, we'll call it the counterbalance to when somebody is sensing something is wrong and they do have to raise their hand? So just as I wanted to create these categories for perpetrators, I, I, I was excited to create this um, these categories for whistleblowers. And I think that the category of whistleblowers in general has such a negative connotation. You know, you think about a whistleblower. Now, think about the general population. Don't think about it from a law, law enforcement perspective or even a legal perspective. But think about it from the everyday person walking down the street thinks that a whistleblower is a traitor, a snitch, a tattletale, a rat, and they really don't want to have anything to do with them, despite the fact that that person really has valuable information to share. And I wanted to capture those qualities in a category, and I call those vigilante whistleblowers. And vigilante whistleblowers are those that when they see something, they say it. And it doesn't matter if it has something directly, if they're directly involved in it or not. And so they, they, there is a group of people that are more vigilante-like and will just go in for the fight no matter what because they are the people that will read your code of conduct from 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 top to bottom they know the appropriate um, behavior of all employees and of all levels and when they see something out of line they say something you actually want this person in your organization maybe not too many of them but you want a few of them around but there are these other two categories that find themselves with the whistleblower moniker and they may not really identify as such but they technically are and those are accidental whistleblowers 
and noble whistleblowers. Accidental just stumbles upon something. They don't necessarily know what to do. They're doing their job and they just stumble upon something and they, they finally decide to report. That's an accidental whistleblower. Now, a noble whistleblower is slightly different where they are a part of a team part of a group they know the protocol that their team is supposed to, to, to supposed to be doing so maybe they're supposed to be uh maybe they're a safety engineer they're on a safety team and they know that by performing their duties they're going to be uh issuing a recall that's going to cost the organization millions of dollars and they don't want to be on the hook for for doing that so they decide we're not going to do these particular safety protocols that we know there's one person that steps out and reports that that's a noble whistleblower and when these noble whistleblowers and accidental whistleblowers step out and they receive some of the treatment some of the harassment some of the some of the name calling some of the bullying that can often be experienced from just whistleblowers in general they're shocked because they're thinking to themselves why am I even considered this I'm just doing my job. And so I want to speak to people that you could still be called a whistleblower, which is a good thing if you fit into one of these other two categories. You're not just the disgruntled employee that always has something to complain about. You're not that's not just what a whistleblower can be. So I wanted to change that narrative around that whistleblower category as well. And Kelly, do you think that's even possible? I do think it's possible because I think the more stories and more examples of the accidental and noble whistleblowers that come forward and triumph and we and we we publish those, we talk about those, the more we will change that perception that everybody that comes forward is a snitch. We have to change that in order to um in order to stop fraud. I mean, when you look at the research and the research shows you that most frauds are are determined or detected by a whistleblower, not an external audit, not even our internal audit functions, that goes to show that we've got to do something to embrace these these, these groups of people. Okay, and but as a reality, and it's not just in business, you see it in the political arena where people step forward, they may be part of, you know, a branch of the military, they may be part of an enforcement community, they may be part of the Department of Defense, they could work, you know, at a uh, local agency. Um, and they do come out, and sometimes they do receive some support. But the overarching, and there, there are, uh, of course, there, there are at least legal protections against retaliation. But do you think we're anywhere near the point where Good people, honest people can actually stand up and um, the negative connotations of what they're doing are removed and they can be protected without, you know, without great personal and professional costs. I think we're getting close. I think we're getting close because I think that we are starting to value the information from the eyes on the inside. So I think we're getting close. We're not, we're, we're not, um, it almost, we almost need a groundswell for people to really support um, those that find themselves with the name Miss Whistleblower. But I think we're getting close. I'm hopeful. And it, it's, um, it's interesting because we're also at the stage where um, people who see fraud or see wrongdoing, for that matter, uh, have all sorts of avenues to, I'll call it, publish 
the information. Um, I was referencing the official uh, U.S. government, various state governments have whistleblower protection plans, and they incentivize people, you know, to come forward. Uh, but you know, the press has always been a uh, traditional source. Uh, WikiLeaks, the ability to scale and disseminate information publicly about what a company is doing or is not doing. Um, but yet, uh, and I'm, I'm just, I want to push towards this, I, you know, every time um, I read about something that I think, you know, should have been reported earlier that people did know about, it seems to have resided within an organization. The practices, as you've pointed out, you know, in the book, uh, these things don't happen overnight and they're not, they don't come to light generally overnight. It's, it's over time and then people struggle, how do I get out from under? But uh, do you really think we are getting close to, you know, sort of, I'll call it an internal control that people are able to exercise to report? Interesting, yeah. I do, I do. And, and a lot of my hope comes from seeing the experiences of accidental whistleblowers. And so um, in my documentary, All the Queen's Horses, I profiled the experiences of an accidental whistleblower by the name of Kathy Swanson. And so when she was the person that came forward to expose the $53.7 million fraud her boss was involved in. And so Kathy's willingness to come forward saved taxpayer taxpayers their money and so I think seeing how she was embraced seeing how she was treated has has shown people that yeah we need people that are in the inside that see it that's that come forward even if that wasn't your intention we're thankful that you've said something so I do think we're getting closer I really do I'm going to take the other um, let me flip the coin a little bit my experience among the things I do counsel um, various people within the government as well as in the private sector is uh, something that a judge taught me a long time ago about once he uh, assumed the bench, how careful he had to be. And as um, friendly as his clerks were, as friendly as his courtroom clerk, the different people that you know managed the courthouse, etc., he recognized that in reality uh, he no longer had friends. Every one of them could, if he did something wrong, if he said something impolitic, if he made the wrong joke, uh, potentially uh, would turn and, and disclose. And to your point, um, there is now a, a bit of an, an, I'll call it an established infrastructure, whereby people who see things have a way to report it, bring it to light. It may not be easy. They may suffer significant personal professional consequences along the way. But uh, part of the message that I've tried to convey various, to various clients is they have to understand this. And so it's no longer a risk-free zone to do the wrong thing. And we're seeing also, I think, uh, a long tail to the behavior that sometimes, uh, and I, I, I want to get your views on this, very often People get away with something, as you point out, and uh, no consequences, and they do it again, and no consequences, they do it again, no consequences, and and pretty soon it becomes uh, pretty much 
the new norm. And then they're surprised when 10 years later or 15 years later, you know, the whole thing falls apart. Well, you also think about, um, and this might not be what we may think of whistleblowing, but people's willingness to pull out their phones, make a video of something and share it is a form of that hopefulness as I, I, I was speaking on about whistleblowing. That is a form of whistleblowing too. It's a form of recording and sharing and you have more people willing to do that. And so I, that, that's a lot also where my hope comes from, where people are willing to say, hey, you know, this isn't right. Let the world know, let the world, let the, let the court be the court of a public opinion. I'm going to share this. I'm going to report this. And I'm, and I'm proud to say this because it's wrong. So I think that we see um, a form of whistleblowing um, as an act of activism now in a way that we didn't see it, I would say, even five five years ago. I absolutely agree with that. And um, to the extent you've read uh, Marshall McLuhan, uh, you know, the advent of cell phones and the ability to record, uh, whether video, photography, or just audio, and the fact that um, nothing you say today ever sort of weaves it's, it, there's a permanency to it. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm hopeful uh, about that aspect of, we'll call it whistleblowing, but it's also, in, in some respects, I'm not sure it's a lesson that's been fully incorporated uh, by people who do this, but, you know, there is, there is that deterrent. The risk-reward calculus has shifted around the commission of, of bad acts. I agree. I totally agree. So I'm hopeful. Okay. I'm hopeful. And we're seeing this play out, by the way, uh, in the streets with everything from police conduct to, um, uh, you know, it's interesting how many Chinese citizens um, begin to record and post on official corruption. They would see um, local leaders uh, taking gifts or driving expensive cars and would post it. And that was sort of their way of blowing the whistle trying to create change, but again, it's the advent of technology. Um, I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about what I refer to as the government's role in creating culture around business, but also governmental affairs. And uh, so much of um, what we've seen in a whole host of um, scandals and issues uh, has been, at least uh, in my view and the views of others, it's not the lack of regulations, it's not the lack of uh, what I'll refer to as uh, outright laws addressing things or that people somehow were ignorant of what was the right side of the line and the wrong side of the line. It was the fact that nobody was doing anything about it and therefore not that it's okay, but wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, if I don't do it, I can't compete in the marketplace. Sort of a race to the bottom. Everyone is doing it. And whether it's, you know, uh, providing capital, uh, recording certain things in the books and records. And in fact, I, I'll call it a bit of a self-justification since um, as an accounting professor, uh, there have been various waves of accounting scandal where aggressive 
accounting techniques or conflicts in the relationships between audit and consulting came to light. But, you know, the regulators, the government, um, would be aware of certain things, but didn't act fast enough. And I'm, I'm curious to get your views about the role of proactive enforcement and the role of um, what I'll refer to as having people in government who, who do use the tools to, I don't, I don't like the word aggressively police the marketplace, but proactively police the marketplace so that things don't get out of hand. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question that I was, th- I was thinking about as you were asking. And I, I, I think that government has done a great job establishing a foundation or a framework of how corporations, executives, employees should behave. I think the, the, the issue is companies have then need to pick that ball up and operationalize it in a way that it doesn't feel like just a check the box type X exercise. And so when you, when you keep things as just a rule or just a policy, people don't embrace it and internalize it in a way that actually changes behavior, that actually changes behavior. So I do think that um, when you think about the whistleblower policies or you think about um, just, gosh, Sarbanes-Oxley, I mean, when you think about some of the the foundational or Dodd-Frank, when you think about some of the foundational regulatory acts that have happened over the past 10 years, I do believe that government has set a great foundation, but it's up to companies, organizations to then get employees empowered to behave accordingly. So, um, now, the, the, the million-dollar question is how to do that better. And so I think one approach is storytelling, scenario-based training, and just taking those <clears throat> policies and turning them into tension-filled decisions so you can gain an understanding of how people may respond when in a pressure pressure decision-making situation. So to answer your question, I do think that we have, government has provided a good framework of, of what the expectations are of how organizations and corporations or publicly traded companies should behave. I thought that was a, a great answer and I wanna seize upon uh, the power of storytelling and your book is filled with stories. I don't think enough stories are told. Um, and people tend to think about these things and use the term check the box. These are the rules, check the box. I got training, check the box. I can't do this, check the box. But too often, I, I think um, people don't realize that there's, there's very little that's new in the commission of crime or fraud. What's new are the headlines, what's new are the people caught up, what maybe new is you know, the nature of the company. But uh, these acts are almost uh, biblical in, uh, in their precedence. But what people don't realize, and I, I, I saw this with young people because I used to do presentations on everything from insider trading to you know how when you see something, say something type of uh, thing it, that the stories about people who 
who have gotten caught up in, in things accidentally or purposefully and um, what has happened to them. Those are the things that people remember more than the rules or maybe not remember more but make a greater impression. So well, I'm sure you know, because what we what we know is we all have a different way that we interpret those rules. And so what the storytelling does is it shows us how this one individual interpreted this policy or this rule and what would you do? So when you think about the science of storytelling, you're able to see your, your brain it allows you to see yourself almost faced with the same situation. And so that's why I agree with you that storytelling is such a powerful way of changing the behavior and impacting the behavior that we want to see. And so um, as you think about the advice you would give to companies, and you know, let's say Ford invites you in and says, you know what, uh, we have to rethink our training here, and we have to put something in place that you know people will sort of live the culture. Tell me, what would be the building blocks that you would put in? I'm going to answer that question, but I'll, I'll tell you something that I was very shocked by, and I think you alluded to this earlier, is it's not so much that the frauds have changed or the schemes have changed, but I feel as though we're seeing a shift and those who are willing to engage in fraud. And so if you followed any of the PPP loan fraud during the pandemic, you started to see entrepreneurs, more more executives, doctors, nurses, um, just professional people that were willing to push the envelope just to see what would happen. And so when you start to see more professional people that you would never suspect would, be, would engage, you... Um, it, 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 it lets you know we need to start doing something different. I um, am doing a study right now, doing a project for the Coalition Against, Against Insurance Fraud. And what my role has been in this project is to um, interview those ha that have committed insurance fraud. So I've been doing about six interviews over the past couple of months. And what has been one of the more shocking points of the interviews is when I asked the perpetrators, well, when you were when you were staging this insurance fraud scam, did the insured ever say anything? And the insured were business professionals, doctors, lawyers who were willing to say, well, hey, if you have a way to defraud this insurance company, you think that this is a way that I could redo my whole kitchen and get new cabinets, I'm game. I'm willing to risk it. I'm willing to bet it. That is shocking to me because you think that you think that this this population of professionally trained white collar jobs would never just willingly try this out. And I think you're seeing more and more people willing to risk it. And that's the reason why we have to have more effective training, because I think the profile of the perpetrator is shifting, It's shifting before our eyes. And so. Gone is the day, or never, not really gone, but welcome to the club, not only the career criminal, the organized crime rings, but just the ma and pop uh, entrepreneur who's willing to try it out too. And that's scary. And Kelly, what, to what do you attribute this? And I, I, I think, look, I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely correct in your thesis. And one can say, well, it's the availability of funds the government was dispensing 
funds at a rapid rate and people, you know, grab it while you can get it, then, you know, I think there was a general message out there that, um, you know, there wasn't going to be much scrutiny around these things. Right. And, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you're, I, I agree with you, you people who ordinarily, I, I ordinarily wouldn't do it, I would also argue, ordinarily wouldn't have the means to do it or the opportunity to, to partake, started to do these things. And um, I'd, I'd love to hear your at least initial thoughts about the shift, yeah. Well, I think, I, I think that, um the government's um, response to helping those in need, entrepreneurs, businesses in need, allowed for uh, a relaxing of some of the internal controls that may have been in place to protect the to, to protect resources. And I think it, it it spread like wildfire with people with people saying things like, "Oh." Just lie about how many employees you have. No one's going to know. No one's ever. The likelihood of somebody ever catching you is so slim. And look, I got an extra $50,000 by saying that I had five employees versus two. You know, just I think this this um, the idea that it was easy to get away with it just spread and spread and spread. And so people thought, hmm, the likelihood, the probability of me getting caught right now at this moment is so much slimmer than it might have been without this pandemic. So I'm willing to try. And people were willing to try. And there were some people that got away with it. And those are the people that are sharing their stories. Well, hey, no one came for me. Why don't you try it? And so they did. So I think that that's what led to such an increase of fraudulent claims, um, especially PPP loan fraudulent claims, because it seemed easy to do it. And uh, the consequences were not necessarily clear. This is, uh, if I can, I was trying to make the point about, you know, the government's role. When these loans were being announced, um, the government didn't exactly say, and by the way, simultaneously, we're going to have a PPP uh, fraud task force that's going to be scrutinizing uh, uh, applications. Uh, they didn't announce, you know, that, you know, they, they, I think there was a disclaimer on some of this stuff. Uh, you know, the banks were responsible for doing the diligence on the loans and verifying certain things. Um, yet they were being politically pressured to process quickly. Um, but I, I did not get the sense, I did not get the sense that people out there were informed that while the government was doing this, the government was also going to be checking. And it might be a year or two years or three years down the road. But these things were going to be audited and audited carefully. We want you to have the financial support, but, you know, integrity and uh, accurate disclosures are going to matter here. Absolutely. I'd be terrified if, it, if, I, if I was one of the people that did that. I'd be okay. terrified. And, but, you know, the government didn't exactly communicate in the outset. And I'm, I'm reminded, not, not that there are parallels, but, you know, the, the, the financial crisis of 2008, the amount of mortgage fraud, the relaxation of underwriting standards, the types of, you know, ratings that were being assigned to securitized uh, portfolios, um, a little lesser known story was that uh, law enforcement officials, the FBI, had a mortgage fraud 
task force, and uh, they actually documented um, throughout the country, all 50 states and, I don't know, a couple hundred different jurisdictions, uh, the amount of mortgage fraud that was occurring, uh, both in the origination, um, borrower side, the verifications, the whole thing. And uh, they took the cases and uh, the prosecutions were declined uh, by the very one district after another because of uh, the concerns around jury nullification and the notion that you'd have people on the jury who, you know, may have fudged a few things themselves. And also because the mortgages had not defaulted. There was, it was sort of like no harm, no foul, harmless error. And I'm, I'm curious if, you know, as again, as a sort of reading through the points you, you've been making, you were making in, in, in the book, I, I couldn't help but think that when things go on for a while, they start small, it's like a snowball, and it gets bigger and bigger. And when practices occur with impunity and people start attributing no harm, no foul, and indeed, as you said, you know, people perhaps maybe successfully trumpeting that they were able to do this or get that, or you know, they got the mortgage on the home or they got the PPP loan or whatever, uh, that there is a cultural problem. And then other people feel, well, okay, they're doing it, so why not me? Obviously, okay, I get it, it's wrong, but no one's doing anything about it, so why shouldn't I partake? And so what can change in these types of environments? Because I can't help but feel that some of the most significant, we'll see what happens with PPP, but I saw the estimates around, uh, you know, the, the billions and billions of dollars of fraud that the government is now reporting. Uh, everyone seems to have some responsibility here, Kelly. Uh, in understanding human behavior and preventing some of the worst forms. And sometimes systemic risk can be created out of this human behavior. It's not just about a company or an individual. And so how do you think about the collective responsibility? So I think that, um, you know, I, I think that we all have a responsibility of self-reflection and honesty. And um, it, it, there's a something that I do in my presentations with uh, large audiences is I created a, the Fool Me Once fraud experience. It's this interactive game that I play with people. And what's interesting is it has all these scenarios that, you, that people go through. For example, if you were sent uh, an expensive briefcase, you only paid for one and the second one came, would you return it? And, and what I think we all have to be honest with ourselves is how willingness we, how willing, how likely we are to agree with things that seem unethical. And I think only until we're honest with ourselves will we be able to move the needle on on fraud i mean I, I think we can do it i think we can do it but i think that we have to stop with this idea that this is them and not us because this is us this is a global issue a a trillion dollar issue so the only way a number gets that high is because all of us are willing to engage and so until we're honest about that um i think that um we won't be able to tackle the problem. The more honest we are about ourselves, about our willingness to agree with unethical choices, I think that we can um, 
we can change some of the behaviors. One of the things that I've noticed over the over the past couple of months as I've been surveying audiences is out of the three perpetrator categories, audiences are tr- are t- t- trending to be either an accidental perpetrator or a righteous perpetrator, which I believe is good news because those types of individuals can be influenced by effective training, by um, understanding the culture, embracing the culture. We can stop fraud, I think, when you see the majority of an employee base being an accidental or or a righteous perpetrator. Now, if everybody is an intentional, we have another problem. We have a bigger problem, but that's not what I'm seeing thus far. I'm trying to get to about 10,000 responses so then I can do um, a study about what I'm seeing and what I've been measured, what I've been measuring over the past six months. But I mean, I'm still encouraged despite the um, large losses and fraud. I'm still encouraged that we can stop this and we will one day. Okay, we'll end on that optimistic very optimistic uh, note. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading re- experts in the risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R A N E network.com. Thanks for listening.